You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm constantly telling my children that they are what they eat, that diversity and balance is crucial when it comes to diet, and their meals should be diverse and colourful. But why then do our dogs, beloved members of our family, whose health is just as important as our children's, eat the same old thing day in, day out? Premium Raw Pet Food Natural Instinct aims to change all of this by providing a new way to feed your dogs and cats as nature intended, free from artificial additives, colours, preservatives and fillers. Since a box of these natural, complete frozen meals were delivered to my door, my dog's meal tames are even more anticipated than ever. I've noticed that Storm's fur is shinier over time and she's leaner and even more full of energy since changing her diet. If you have cats and dogs at home, give it a go, especially as Natural Instinct is now offering 10% off the entire range with the code PODCAST10, valid to all new customers. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. Becoming a parent is often the catalyst for re-examination of lifestyle, a time when people often redefine what truly matters to them in their life, but also how they can inspire and encourage their children to lead a rich and rewarding life. Julia Ogilvie is one of these people, although it was not becoming a parent per se that inspired her turning point. A successful entrepreneur living in Scotland with her husband and two young children, it was the death of Cameron, the young child of a family friend, that inspired Julia to think carefully about whether the successful and glamorous life she led was a life she'd be happy to have lived in retrospect. In her book, Turning Points, she interviews 10 people whose extraordinary lives have been characterized by moments like these, learning what drove them to pursue the path they did. Thank you so much for joining me today. I loved your book. And while it's not a parenting book per se, I felt that there were so many points in there. There were so many themes in there that really resonated with me being a parent. Because, I mean, you know, I'm sure, but when you do become a parent and when your children get a little bit older, probably the ages your children were around the time you were writing this book, you really re-examine how you are leading your life and what drives you so that you can lead your children to lead a similarly rewarding life. I think that for me that becomes kind of, it's more important now than in any other point in my life. I'm interested to know whether as a parent, you obviously had you, your turning point, but what, did, what you learnt from meeting these extraordinary people and how your meeting with them influenced your life and particularly your life as a mother? So I'd love to maybe just just tell me a little bit about your life and about how Cameron's death led you to change the path that you were on. Well, thank you, Marina, very much for having me on your podcast. It's wonderful to talk to you. 
Gosh, there's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in my 50s, so, you know, I've had quite a life. And it's been an unusual life because I really was on one particular trajectory, I think. You know, I'd been to university. I'd uh, met met my husband at St Andrews, very happily married still after 30-something years. And we were lucky to be able to have our two children, who are now in their 20s. And I think, um, you know, I just saw my life unrolling like most people do with, you know, a good job, which I had, and all the other you know, expectations I might have had. But they, I, I think there were a lot of different things that came together. And it wasn't in just about the loss of Cameron. I think she became a catalyst for a lot of the struggles that I was having. So it probably began when my children were around, I suppose, six and four or something. And I was commuting an hour at least every morning to Edinburgh. Uh, I used to leave home at about 5.30 in the morning so that I could get back in time for bath time at the end of the day. And I think, like many parents, it just was becoming more and more of a struggle. And I, you know, I used to drive home and just sort of try and do a, some kind of meditation or something so that by the time I got home, I could really be present for them. But that was difficult. And, you know, back then we didn't, you know, didn't really have mobile phones. I wasn't having to, to work necessarily in the evening. But there was always that feeling of thinking about the next day. And just feeling that I wasn't really with them. And I think as the children get older, they start needing you more. I mean, I honestly don't have great regrets about not being around when they were very small. But I do think that got harder later. And there was a wonderful moment, um, touching moment with my son Alexander, when he tucked a little note into my book that I was I, I was taking to work. And it just said, please, mummy, spelt P-L-S, mummy, don't go to work, spelt W-R-O-K and I still have that note and I remember that and I remember just driving in and sort of tears streaming down and thinking help you know why am I not getting this right and I think that's a very normal situation so I think all of that was kind of bubbling away tremendous stresses at work because we ended up doing a management buyout and I was flying up and down London a lot and dealing with lawyers and having to do all night things sessions with them so there was a lot of that going on and I think just a number of different things started to happen. But along the way, yes, this beautiful, beautiful little girl who I knew and loved was dying of a disease called Tay-Sachs. And, you know, she died at the age of two. But, you know, we knew for at least 18 months that this was going to happen. And she was the daughter of a very, very close friend. And I something about her touched me so intensely. With Tay-Sachs children, they tend to lose a lot of their faculties. So she was, you know, going blind, not able to speak. Lots of different things were happening. But... I just remember that she did have the most beautiful face, the most extraordinary eyes, and you felt like she sort of saw into your soul somehow. After she died, I mean, I really thought of her as my kind of guardian angel, and I still do. I mean, she would be 21 now, and I write a letter to her parents every year that's been rather a fascinating, looking back over them, a fascinating view of the journey I think I've been on since then, and a very beautiful one in a way. And so she's still very much in my life. But, yeah, I think that happened. And then I think I was just ripe for something to change. And I I suppose the situation we're in now has some similarities. You know, there are probably a lot of people with, you know, things that were already going on in their heads, you know, worrying about how they were getting their work-life balance right, how they were bringing up their children, all kinds of things, where, where, where they should be living. I mean, I think those things are all there. And then a big... You know, catastrophe of some kind happens if you you know you could call this that kind of thing and it becomes a bit of a turning point so for me yes it was a turning point that's the name of the book and um, I yeah I, I sort of started a kind of new journey which for me was partly a journey of faith 
I would not not sure I would have said I was a particularly religious person before, but somebody rather randomly asked me to go on a pilgrimage around about the year 2000, and I went, and that was a separate story, but was a hugely life-changing experience for me. And that then, when I came back, made me really think about my work and think, well, if I am going to work, can I be sure I'm doing something that's really meaningful and purposeful and that feels right if I'm going to take the time away from my children? Did you find that there was... Any negativity around this big decision? Were, was was everyone for it? Everyone whose opinion mattered to you? Or did you encounter some people who felt that maybe that was, wasn't the right decision? Well, I mean, of course, I'm an incredibly lucky situation in that I was able to actually sell the business I had and then launch a big non-profit charity organisation called Project Scotland, which was very close to my heart. It was about volunteering for young people as a way of helping them move forward in their lives. I could do that because I'd made enough money to do that. So I'm well aware that so many people don't have that kind of luxury of choice. And I think there was a little bit of pushback, I, you know, perhaps parents that were worried or, you know, that kind of thing. I'd, I'd sort of got a great career going and a sense that somehow I was um, you were destroying that. Yeah. That was going to be difficult. My family were hugely supportive. So that was, you know, my, my husband in particular so that was okay. I think people were intrigued. I mean, I ended up, it was, I ran quite a well-known business in Scotland and I ended up doing a lot of, there was a lot of publicity around this decision in a way. That's really what led to the book because I kept being asked to speak about it. People would say, well, you know, why? Why would you do this? What? Why this big change? What happened? And I began to talk about it more and more and ultimately it became a book. And at what point did you start meeting other people who'd experienced this, I suppose, epiphany or just this idea that their lives were going to change course because they all have very, very different circumstances and some, you know, it's great hardship that has led to where yes. their life is today and some, I mean, I'm thinking about John Wood who was, you know, I suppose similar to you. In he left he had, Microsoft yeah. and to change the world. I mean, he wrote an extraordinary book about it and he now, you know, does, has this extraordinarily huge charitable organisation all across the world called Room to Read providing books and education to children all over the world. I mean, it's a vast organisation. So, yes, he, his was, I mean, his was much more of a shock to people, I think, because he went from a huge salary to absolutely none. He's made huge changes in his life to kind of make that work. But I think the person who most inspired me and got me really doing the book was Sarah Brown, Gordon Brown's wife. And as you may recall, she'd lost, they'd lost a child, Jennifer. You know, she was born, but um, with a lot of difficulties and didn't live for very long and it had a hugely a powerful effect on both Gordon and Sarah and I was mentioning to Sarah that someone had asked me if I might write a book about my turning point which didn't feel much of a story on its own and she said well I'm sure that if you want to do that Gordon would talk to you and so he did end up talking to me for the book and it was the first time he'd spoken about it and did anybody. she not want to talk about it that she probably would have done, actually. I, I think it was, to be fair, it was more about having Gordon, who was Prime Minister, in my book. And, of course, I then got to... It was wonderful because I then got to launch the book at Downing Street. So I honestly think it was that. I think she would have done, um, eventually. But it is, it's great to have that male perspective, too, because I yes. think very often when you talk about great baby loss, it's often the mothers who talk about it more. And often, I think, society expects the mother to grieve more, and I don't think that is the case. No, and I think, I mean, I, I think as a society, we don't grieve enough. Um, I'm, I, I love that word lamentation. It's a very sort of biblical word. But I think in the past, I mean, I'm also very passionate. A lot of the work I do now is around sort of learning, taking wisdom from spiritual traditions. And one of the things I often think about is this idea of lamentation, that people were allowed room to grieve. People had ways of grieving. And 
even I don't, small things like in the Jewish tradition, the fact that you might wear a, you might wear a ribbon or a black band or something that would show people for a year that you were grieving. I mean, I find those sort of things wonderful because I think otherwise people carry so much alone. And it isn't, I know, right for everyone to talk all the time about what's going on. But I think, I think we can be nervous about asking. And having had several, very sadly, several friends who've lost children, they'll all say the same thing, which is there's nothing worse than seeing your friends cross the street to avoid talking to you. And honestly, I mean, I, you may feel differently, but honestly, I'd rather they just said, I can't even find the words or something than try to just ignore it. Because we can't find the words easily. Nobody can. I mean, and you never can know how somebody's feeling that day. But I think to be left alone in that grief is very difficult. I agree with you. And I think for men, it, there aren't always the forums that are easy for them. And, uh, you know, and, and that sense of sort of, people have with some some people have with grief which is if I let this go I'll, I'll just fall apart you know fall apart all and I'll never be able to um I'll never be able to recover myself which if you don't mind can I just read a um, yes. some words that really matter to me and that by sharing a lot recently from by a Tibetan nun called Pema Chodron and um she's written some wonderful wonderful books including a wonderful one called uh, When Things Fall Apart And she writes, only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found in us. Things falling apart is a kind of testing and also a kind of healing. We think that the point is to pass the test or to overcome the problem, but the truth is that things don't really get solved. They come together and they fall apart. Then they come together again and fall apart again. It's just like that. The healing comes from from letting there be room for all of this to happen. Room for grief, for relief, for misery, for joy. And I think I, yeah, I just I find those words resonate a lot with me at the moment. But I think I think there's I have that feeling too at the moment that there needs to be room for all of those emotions. You know, there can be joy. There, you know, we were talking about this before. But Cameron's mother, well, the, Cameron's father was it had a twin brother and was married to another woman, a friend of of Blythe complicated story but they both lost children and they talk often about the fact that they did find moments of laughter and craziness crazy laughter really and joy but you know and they still do when they think about those children as well as the intense grief and I think all of those emotions are valid and all of them need room you know somewhere and some space and I think it saddens me that for some people they can't find that space easily. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But this is surely something that's really important to teach children. 
Oh, yes. You know, I think looking at my children and looking at education in the syllabus and what they're taught in school and what is deemed important, an important part of shaping a person, that doesn't come into it. That, that idea that you have to accept that things will fall apart, but they will come back together. For me, that seems a crucial thing to teach children. And, you know, we are lucky to live in a world where child mortality is pretty rare. Mm. But at the same time, it doesn't not happen. And I think that if I can teach my children to deal with grief when it happens to them, because it will happen to them, whether it's a dog dying or a grandparent or a sibling or a friend's sibling, to be able to support your friend, that is, that is the essence of life. That is the essence of a successful life. No, I think that's absolutely right. And um, it's funny, we, we uh, funny, we, we, many you know, years ago, we uh, lost my father-in-law to cancer for many, many years. He died on Boxing Day. We would always get together as a family and we would just read some things together, things that he loved, poetry or a prayer or something. And I always remember, well, even today, that my husband will always break down into quite intense tears, you know, sobbing. And I always remember, you know, that, that, that's just something that we've all got used to or we were used to and that the children would look at. And I think it was just, a, to me, it was just a great thing that they saw him weep and cry and then afterwards we would laugh because we would share some joke of that, you know, about something that he'd done, that my father-in-law had done that would make us, yeah, make us remember him in a happy way. And I've just always thought those things are really good. But to us, you know, that's another example, I guess, of a ritual and of allowing a space where people can actually share what they're really feeling. And I think it's been a really good thing and, you know, tears are a big part of life and I think what you're talking about is resilience as well is that challenge of how do we make our children more resilient for life Um, but also fear of the unknown is the worst kind of fear and I read something recently and and it was Alan de Botin he said you know we have nothing to fear apart from fear itself and actually you know we're we're recording at the time of, of coronavirus and people are obviously very anxious and he said one of the best ways of confronting your fear is is to really think about the fear itself and what you would do and how would you if the worst 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 had happened could you put one in front of the other and, and mostly we can yes and then you've confronted it and then you don't need to worry about it so that big kind of worry is gone but I think, you know, by crying in front of your children, I'm I, I'm quite a big crier, especially at, you know, mm. kind of cheesy things. Clapping always makes me cry. Like every Thursday evening, I'm in tears. It, just, it bewilders mm. me sometimes. But my children are now really used to me crying. And I was talking to a friend of mine and she said, you know, I don't, I don't want to come over because I'm so anxious. What if I cry? I said, well, so what if yes, you cry? So if, if, you know, this is, but what if your children, then they won't understand? Mm. I said, but they're used to people crying. And there is, you know, this sentiment that crying is weak. I I think actually crying is, is a very strong thing to do. It is. And I think it you know takes courage sometimes to just to step into that fear. Well, not sometimes. It does take courage. It's just... It, and show it, your it vulnerability. Is. And show vulnerability. And that's something I'm incredibly passionate about. And last week I was helping lead a conference for leaders from all kinds of different sectors. And it was called Soulful Leadership. And we talked a lot about this vulnerability and about, the you know, how in leadership it's so often... The idea is that you need to look strong and sound strong, and actually, how can, how can you how can you do that? How can you help your colleagues and the people who work with you in a time like this if you don't so show some vulnerability yourself? If you don't allow a little bit of space in your working organisation for people to express some of their anxieties and fears? I mean, clearly, it can't necessarily take over the whole working day, but I think if you allow a little bit of space for that, then it people just you know feel, can feel connected. I think. 
I think what we're, what's going to change a lot is that idea that, you, you know, when you go to work, you just switch to a new personality and you shut the door behind you and you leave all your anxieties at home. You don't worry about children. You leave them with somebody else and off you go. I just don't think that's real anymore. People are going to be worrying about all kinds of different things and f- be fearful. And they need some way to express that. And I think, again, that comes back to this sort of ritual thing of well, what, are the, what are the rituals we can create to help us do that properly and help teach our children that it's okay. I, I always think, you know, one of the, the big skills I think children have to learn is how to make friends. That's always, it's, I mean, some people find it much easier, some people find it much more difficult. But I think by showing a little bit of vulnerability is a great fast track way of yeah. forging an instant relationship. And that doesn't mean that it's, it's not, not going to be a deep relationship. I think, if anything, the other way. But it's almost like if you've got a slightly shy child, to, to say, tell them, tell them something that you're a little bit nervous about and share that with someone and immediately your relationship changes gear mm, mm. there's this wonderful concept i was reading a, an extract of a book it's not out yet by um a journalist called Kavandra hodge and she it's it's about her, her sister who died when she was mm. about nine and she talks about this uh, pg version of her life because she grew up basically not telling anyone the rubbish stuff that had happened to her but just pretending you know mm. I work at Tatler and I'm a glamorous journalist and and then she realized that no one really knew about her actual life and she said that when she started sharing the true story with people everyone was much more connected to her and she'd have such you know enriched conversations and relationships with people whether she was just sitting next to them at a sort of fancy dinner party or at a at a you know cocktail party and it made me realize that we shouldn't be afraid of the messiness of life. And that, that's kind of, in a way, what makes life richer. We should almost be proud if our life is a bit messy and we've, because that makes us a much more interesting person. Oh, you're, you're so right. And I, yes, I mean, I look back and think what, you know, when it came to my own turning point and what changed. I mean, for me, I had, I was quite young, relatively young. I was 27 when I was, became managing director of a business. And I, the only way I knew how to manage that was to develop this kind of mask, this front that said, I know what I'm doing, you know, I, I've got some idea, you know, because frankly, you know, I didn't most of the time. Um, I wrote another book later called Women in Waiting, which was about women in the church who all described the same thing, which was the, the challenge of looking serene, the classic image of the duck, you know, with your feet furiously paddling underneath <laughs> saying, help, you know. And for a lot of women, that is the reality. I think for some men as well, but you know, women in particular, it's a reality of their lives and their working lives. But the moment I shifted that, you know, that shifted in myself and I actually did open myself up. And I moved into something different and I started to talk about why and what had happened to me. I mean, I had a form of nervous breakdown, I think. I mean, not overly dramatic, but I think I did. And um, I think when people saw that, I mean, it it changed my connection with people so dramatically. Um, You know, it was very touching, too. You know, I remember one of my sisters just saying to me one day, oh, it's so wonderful. We've got you back. You know, I remember being quite shocked by that and then thinking, well, she's probably right. You know, I, I, I feel I'm back to who I really am instead of being this sort of, yeah, slightly fake person. And do you think it changed the relationship you had with your children? I really hope so, yes. I mean, I, th- I think it did. I mean, you know, bringing up children is always going to be a challenge in every situation. But, you know, we're a very close family and I certainly had a lot more time. I mean, not always because actually then I went off and started something else. And, of course, that had its moments of huge tension. And, you know, there were always times when I was traveling and things. But I think I, I think it did. I think it opened us all up much more to just being better with each other for a start. I mean, 
in terms of sort of lessons that you learned from other people, I sort of went back to the book recently and was thinking about, um, you know, what I learned from it. And I particularly loved the interview you did with Clive Stafford-Smith, mm. who's a death row lawyer. And there's one bit I want to read out because it really resonated with me. And he's talking about existing in a difficult community because obviously he's amongst, you know, people, lifers, yeah. people who are going to be sent to their death. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've done mostly, you know, pretty awful things. And he said, I would so much rather live in a community of my clients on death row than in an average community because they're much more interesting, nicer people. And it's not because they're inherently that way. It's because they've had the good fortune to go through a terrible experience and that's made them really look at life and value it. And most people don't have that opportunity. Most people never stop in between rushing here to there, being forced to worry about things that don't matter. I love the concept of reframing the rubbish stuff that happens to you in life as an opportunity. And I think that as someone, you know, who has had pretty awful, one, you know, lost a baby, uh, you know, if, if someone had said to me at that time, this is an opportunity for you to really learn from this, I think I would have, as I'm someone who always likes to see the positive, but I think that would have been a really empowering thing to have known about and I absolutely loved that sentiment I think yes and I think there's a lot of truth in that I mean it's there's always a challenge and a balance between saying you know suffering is awful you know these things are terrible terrible things and you can't take that away but the theme definitely in the book or what came out was that people somehow go on they do mostly you know they mostly do and they put one get out of bed put one foot in front of the other and they get through it it takes a lot of courage and for some people faith is you know can be helpful or some form of spirituality some way of sort of perhaps looking beyond and trying to get you know a wider understanding of what's happened but I think um I think certainly and again from a faith perspective a lot of times you will see that suffering you know suffering is seen to be a kind of spiritual teacher in a way and there's a wonderful there's a wonderful theologian called Howard Thurman who wrote that you know suffering opens doors that wouldn't be opened any other way and I think there's a variety of doors that get opened certainly there are ones that are to do with connection with other people with a different way of living and often they can take you to good things. And I think looking back at, you know, Cameron's mother would say, I mean, she would, you know, would never want to go through that again, but she would say what she has done with her life since has been extraordinary and has been remarkable because of what happened, because she was able to turn it into something good. And she started something called Courageous Parents Network, CPN, which is an incredible website for anyone who's got a child with a life-limiting or life-threatening illness um, it's full of stories of people and siblings and all kinds of things different situations it's a wonderful wonderful resource for people and I think yes a lot of the people in the book had extraordinary stories I mean one of the most the, the person I loved more than anything and still remain friends with is called Olivia Giles and she was a successful corporate lawyer in Edinburgh when she woke up one morning and, and had very severe meningitis you know she's lost her legs and her arms you know she has one arm to her elbow and one knee you know very little else I mean for most people who came into that room and saw her, they thought her life would never be worth living, that she would never cope. And she And has. the doctors did say, you know, yeah, didn't I mean, they? Yes. And it was, yep. And she, but she, she's strong. She, you know, she's resilient. She fought back and um, she's not a religious person, but she does, you know, believe in something, some greater meaning and greater purpose. And she now, you know, she flies all over the world. She has clinics, prosthetic clinics in Malawi and 
um, Zambia and she's traveling and doing all these things. I mean, she's really astonishing and has an incredibly fulfilling life, a hard life sometimes. But again, the kind of thing she's done is amazing. But I don't want to suggest that all people who suffer like that are going to be able to do those kind of things because that can be obviously dangerous as well. And I think to me, it's a lot to do with just small steps, small changes for people just when they're able to, maybe if someone offers something or if you hear something, you think, gosh, I wonder if I could do that or if I could make that change. I would just encourage people to listen for those voices wherever they come from and take those little steps because often they lead to far greater ones. Do you, I mean, reading the book, it's surprising stories because you hear stories like Olivia's story, but also uh, Diane's story. Yes, in Rwanda. In Rwanda. Yeah. And you just think, how can you possibly go, go on? For, I, mean, and you, I certainly felt surprised that anyone could, could get through what they got through. Do you ever felt that they felt surprised by their strength? Was, was Olivia always that person that was going to get through anything? Or did her resilience surprise her? And the same think, with Diane. I think her resilience probably did surprise her. I think she... But she would look back now and say, I was struggling a little with my life as it was. And I think that was the case already. You know, it's like murmuring that this wasn't the, the life she wanted. She was about 30 then. And so there was something, I think, that... Um, something about her nature probably that helped her for other people yes I mean there's a story yes well Diane in Rwanda I mean she lost her whole family in the genocide and fled with a cousin to Burundi and came back and her parents were all gone and you know she had some again somehow had to go on I mean she has a very strong faith she kind of grew up with this strong sense of herself and it got her through to a certain extent I met her when she was came to Scotland and was working in a hotel and at that point she was having the most terrible terrible nightmares and I think her thing she had she had you know she was suffering from PTSD in a very extreme way and she didn't know that she saw it as a sort of curse that had been put on her in some way and that was an interesting challenge for for a vicar in our church a minister in our church who ended up conducting a kind of exorcism with her because that actually was the thing she needed to hear she needed to hear someone say you know, these demons will go, an extraordinary and powerful story, really. And it did help her dramatically, but again, you know, something to do with obviously her mind and getting through that time. But she, yes, I mean, she's remained strong and it's a powerful story. But there are, you know, there's other stories in there, like my friend Sean, who was a, you know, a heroin addict who really, really had hit rock bottom. And again, somehow through different kinds of help, got out of that situation and now is married with five children. It's sort of wonderful story. But you know, he took a long time to hit rock bottom. It was a very tough time. And I think his family had long since given up. But, you know, miracles do happen. One of the things that everyone that you interview shares, I think, is that they all do things for other people. Yeah. And I really loved when John Wood said, you know, he said, my philosophy is very simple. If you end up getting a lot given to you in life that doesn't make you a good person the question is what you do with that good fortune there are a lot of people out there who make a lot and have a lot but they're not happy and I know a lot of people who make a lot and have a lot and they do a lot for others and they're the ones who are absolutely truly happy yeah I mean I passionately believe in that 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 it is about serving other people and that you know that'll go back to the faith issue again I suppose which is you know as a Christian and it's same applies to almost all faiths that idea of loving your neighbor which is exactly what happening now with this virus that we are seeing this outpouring of love for people's neighbors whatever they call but in their neighbors you know it doesn't have to be just your literal neighbor it can be people all over the world but we're called to do that and I think 
you know, there's so much wisdom in that because it is, it, you know, takes you beyond yourself. It helps you understand other people's situations. It creates bonds with people. And it just is incredibly rewarding. So I think, again, if people have time to do even the smallest thing, it can be very life-changing. And I, you know, John's absolutely right with that. I mean, I really do feel that, that those 10 people who are doing that kind of work tend to be the happiest people. And that's ultimately what we want for our children, isn't it? For them to be happy. And I know that other things do matter and and other things will contribute to to that happiness. But I do think... I mean, I see a lot of people who have it all, just like John said. Yeah. They aren't happy. They think they're happy, and they, but they often think they're going to be happier when they get something else. Mm. And then, of course, they never are. And it's so easy when you're the children of that kind of person or even growing up in a comfortable, you know, uh, f- uh, first world country where, you know, life's never particularly hard and you don't really have that many proper challenges just to kind of think that actually things will make you happier. And I think that is such an important thing to teach children and not only to do things for other people, but to do them quietly, not to do them ostentatiously, to do someone a favor that they don't even know you did. That's the kind of proper good deed to pick something up or just to do something secretively for someone and not expect any thanks. No, I think that's really important. I think I, I, it, it does worry me a bit that there are certain kind of newspapers in this country who send out awful messages about, you know, this person doesn't deserve this because or we shouldn't be helping them because, you know, one person abuses the system or something. I mean, that upsets me more than I can tell you because it just, the reality of the work you know, I've done over the years with people in incredibly disadvantaged and difficult communities is that that's not the way people are at all and you see the most extraordinary outpourings of love I always remember we did a a test in our church once and you know I belonged to a church in this was back in St Andrews and it was a reasonably wealthy church fairly middle class I suppose and that somebody had done this work all over Scotland looking at different churches and the amount that people had given to, in, you know, when different crises happened. And I think, I can't, I can't exactly remember what the situation was, but there was some particular situation. And the highest level of donations came literally from the poorest churches in the poorest communities, mainly because they actually understood what the need was. They really knew that their neighbours were desperate. Um, and the lowest amount of money came from the richest ones because I think people just thought, well, you know, I'll give a little bit, but, you know... When's it going to stop? When's it going to stop? And, well, yeah. who re- you know, do they really need it? And have they worked hard? And, I mean, all kinds of other messages that were coming out. And I think, you know, that certainly, when it, going back to anything, from the minor strike to anything else, Bob Geldof, when he was um, raising money all those years ago, Ethiopia, I mean, without fail, the people with least money gave the most. And I, you know, I, I was... It was extraordinary to hear and it didn't surprise me actually because I think when people really understand I mean I'm passionate about the fact that people need to see they really need to see what their neighbour needs so you know if you are in Notting Hill and you had no idea about what was going on with Grenfell Tower or something change that make sure in future you do take an active role in actually looking and seeing and getting involved because if you don't then how can you know what the needs are how can you help really I think culturally in this country, I mean, we give a lot less in the UK than the Americans do. And I think ultimately we need to change the way our children think about giving. And, you know, not that it is giving your pocket money, it's doing things for other people. It's allowing other people or organisations to use your skills or your knowledge or your building, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. everyone can do something. One of the things that I love you talking about is that you were at your grandmother's funeral and you were reading her epitaph and you thought, well, what's going to be on my epitaph? And what if 
successful businesswoman is on there. How's that going to make me feel? (laughs) It's such a good exercise to think on a sort of yearly basis. What do I want my epitaph to say? And am I achieving that? Yes, I mean, it was a very powerful moment for me. I can remember it so vividly. You know, it was this miserable cold day standing in this graveyard and I was already in the throes of sort of struggle, I think, with work and everything. And I just remember standing there and it just talked about her being beloved. Beloved, you know, that's all that mattered. She was beloved by her family, by her friends, by the people who knew her. And she didn't have any obvious signs of great worldly achievement and success. You know, she just been a well just she had been a full-time mother to a one child who'd been very disabled and was just adored by everyone and I yeah I just thought beloved to be beloved what is more important on this earth really not not much I mean it's then that people can say that about you and I think that's something we really need to keep thinking about what is success unless it's that unless it's you know that you loved and were loved you know if you are lucky enough to be loved but you know yeah Well, thank you so much, Julia. I've so enjoyed chatting to you. I could chat for many hours more, but I really enjoyed the book too. Turning Points, it's available on Amazon. I know it was published a while ago. Yes, it's very old now. I don't know if you can still get copies, but hopefully it's still, I mean, it's funny because it's still, you know, it was written a long time ago, but it still does feel relevant in lots of ways. Um, It's absolutely relevant. I'm going to write a new book. So, Well, I I was going to say, will you write another one? Because I'm sure you can find 10 other great interviewees who can divulge the sort of lessons of of their lives. Yeah, I think the subject I'm most interested at the moment, actually, is just that word transition. And I think we're in a time of transition and really helping people think about how to get through these times. And as I said before, I love so many of the traditions that come from, the, the, the wisdom that comes from spiritual traditions. I was thinking a lot about Ramadan and what that's, you know, Ramadan's there to teach people perseverance. It's about teaching people, you know, to be resilient and to cope with a difficult time when you don't have all the things you want all of the time, food or whatever else that might be. And also it's about community unity and there's so much that's really good we can learn from those kind of things or from any other rituals that we have in our different faiths. But we'll get yeah. writing and we'll have another podcast <laughs> when that's that's out because that, that would be fantastic. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thanks, <laughs> <And> Marina. <laughs> thank you all for downloading another episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review us wherever you downloaded this podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, from Julia and me, thanks for listening and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.